0: So welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. And if it works to have your video on, that's great. Uh, It's nice to be able to see people. I wanna continue with the theme of awakening. I've been looking in times here together for the last few months at the larger theme of awakening, looked at it in a variety of different ways, including looking at traditional understandings of awakening. Asking the question, is a contemporary path of awakening different in some ways from a traditional path of awakening? What does awakening mean? And the last few times I've worked with the traditional model, one of the main ways that awakening is clarified, which is called the seven factors of awakening. And today I want to look in particular at one of those seven factors, which is one of the most interesting ones and can really bring in a lot of creativity to our practice, creativity and energy and interest. And this is the quality of inquiry or investigation. And I want to focus on that. We explored that theme some in the uh, practice session. And I think I'll probably also bring in some brief practices in the middle of talking. Then we'll have some some discussion together, and I'll be inviting us to continue with these practices in the next week. And then we can have time uh, next week to talk about how the practices have been. Probably will I'll see where I am, but I'll probably continue some with the, um, the theme of inquiry. It's a very um, powerful topic and one that we can explore in a number of different ways. <clears throat> so just to return briefly to talk about the traditional understanding of awakening and the, and the model of the seven factors of awakening. So again, the most common way that the Buddha taught about awakening was in terms of eliminating greed, hatred and delusion or eliminating transforming our tendencies to reactivity, to grasping. In a way, we could say to um, reactivity and resistance to the present moment. While also, when we get into some of the complexities of that, of course it means also responding with wisdom and compassion to the present moment. So the framing of the practice is really in terms of ending compulsive habitual grasping on the one hand, and um, compulsive habitual pushing away on the other again we can um you know we can learn to respond skillfully and sometimes see a situation that's not okay but we respond to it without that kind of grasping or pushing away Mm. you know so i'm thinking for example um The life of uh, Desmond Tutu who just died would give us an example of someone who I think very much in a Christian framework had something very similar. Responding very, very strongly to the apartheid situation of South Africa, but in a way which brought in love and uh, understanding, empathy, strong action strong statements, but also the intention for reconciliation and restorative justice. So I think his life gives a very good example of that balance of uh, really intending to transform the heart and the mind, but seeing that that doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean saying, Situations of injustice are okay. So I think that gives a very, very beautiful example. And it was, for me, just personally, it was, was, I've been really um, appreciative of um, spending time uh, with people who had prominent roles in the um, African National Congress, including one person who was one of... uh, about 15 people on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with Bishop Tutu and learning a lot of the details of actually what happened um, in that process. So, and again, it's, you know, it had many imperfections, but it went further than most processes that have ever happened on this earth. So well worth studying. I, I, I published an interview on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, maybe I should should put that on my website so that's available. It was really, really helpful. So the Buddha's emphasis was particularly on developing qualities that cut through our greed, hatred, and delusion. And uh, one of the models that he used is this model of the seven factors of awakening, which we've looked at a few times in our our sessions. I should also say that at times, the Buddha also gave a more positive account of awakening. And that's also something which we see in the uh, Thai forest tradition, where they talk about the awakened mind and heart being what was called by um, Achan Mun the, the primal mind or the radiant mind. And Achan Cha, with whom I studied some, and uh, Tanisra and, and Kitasaro studied uh, at length with uh, Achan Cha. He called it the old mind or the original mind. We're trying to get back, he said, to the old awakened mind. So that's that's a more positive way of talking about awakening. You know, and letting that old, original, primal, radiant mind be there more and more in our lives. But there's also this uh, further model called the Seven Factors of Awakening, which uh, gives uh, an indication of qualities that we can develop that will lead us towards awakening. And to recall those qualities, there are really three sets. There, There are seven qualities. There's mindfulness, which is always valuable. And then there are two sets of three factors. One of them is the set of factors which are called energizing. When our practice is a little bit stuck or stagnant or doesn't have much energy, these three are what, as it were, the doctor calls for. You know, these three are inquiry or investigation, which we'll look at today. They are also energy and also a joy or rapture. So... If you're if you're lacking, um, if your practice feels a little stuck, do that which brings about joy. And if you want to get a a nice course, James Barra has always, I think, starting in January or February, gives a several month uh, course on awakening joy. So we can do things which awaken joy, such as holding uh, cats in our in our lap, as I see with at least one person right now. Very good. Right, right on timing. We didn't plan that out, but that that just happened. (laughs) So, uh, And then there are three stabilizing factors, which are what we can do when the mind is really um, overly active. When the mind is overly active, it's actually not good to do a lot of inquiry. Then we wanna bring about tranquility, concentration, and or equanimity. Those are the three stabilizing factors. So, again, that's a very helpful model because it tells us uh, mindfulness, always helpful. Do that just to let me myself know what's happening. Right. But then when I know what's happening, I can bring about other qualities as well. When I know what's happening. Oh, gosh, I'm a little bit, you know, low energy. What should I do? Let's do one of the three energizing factors. Let's do what brings that about. Or. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, overly energized a little bit restless then what should I do well let's do one of that's bring about one of these other qualities so inquiry or investigation and in the in the text the the term that's used is uh, dhamma uh, vichaya and uh, And that can mean the um, investigation of the basic elements that are there. Sometimes it can also mean the investigation or inquiry into the teachings. Dhamma has different meanings and it can mean sort of the elements of experience on the one hand and the other main meaning is it can mean the basic way things are, which is related to the core teachings. Right off, it's helpful to acknowledge that talking about inquiry and investigation can be confusing because sometimes we seem to get the message that meditation is about um, stopping your thinking, basically, and not thinking and ending thinking, ending all the way the mind usually works. How many people have heard something like that message? You know, stop your thinking if you want to meditate, and that's—I um, would say—it's a half truth. It's really not. It's not where we're really at, but it's—it's um, it's a message that we often, the often, we often get. Some of it, I think, is in reaction to maybe uh, uh, many, many of our educational models, where the model of education was primarily more intellectual, not really focused on opening up to the emotions or to the body or to intuition or to spirituality, and many of us said, we want to we do it differently. <laughs> Let's do it differently. And I think it also comes from some Buddhist traditions have um, sometimes reacted Again, some of the intellectual traditions which have been there. I think this is particularly ch- true in the development of Zen in uh, China, where it's very, very developed intellectual traditions. And sometimes Zen has come across as, you know, stop your thinking and just be present. You know, there, there's a, a famous text, from the 6th century, from the third Zen ancestor, uh, Sangstan, which has these lines you may have heard, which could give you the sense that meditation doesn't involve any thinking. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. That's from the 6th century. That's a And we may have that sense, but I think it's really a question of balance, right? So for me, when I was first meditating, I was a student at the time. And at that time, being a student, I thought, and was the message was, you know, more or less think all the time, (laughs) right? Keep on reading, thinking, doing this. And so in my original study, it was really important to be able to drop the thinking, You know, and and I was also, as I've sometimes shared here, um, I was also, like many of us, a planner. You know, how many of us are planners? Yeah, and so I was was a big planner. And so when I first started meditating, I noticed myself that, you know, if I would sit for 45 minutes, I'd be planning like for the first half hour. It was kind of, and I kind of got the message I was over planning, you know, because I, I knew I came from a family of planners, you know, like I've sometimes shared. My, my sister has a master's degree in planning, right? And you can get, you know, it was, it was actually urban planning, so a little bit different. But in any case, um, and so for me, it was really valuable to not have my thinking be so compulsive. That's really what this is all getting at. You know, compulsive thinking where we're just going on and on we have to learn how not to have that be so compulsive. And that's certainly what I learned initially in meditation. First of all, I saw how much I was thinking. Like I say, I would, you know, and it was particularly complicated because when I first started meditating, I was coming from a year of living in Germany as a student, and I didn't know whether I wanted to stay another year in Germany or came back to the United States. And so I would sit there meditating and I would go, Germany, United States, Germany, United States. I go back and forth like that for, for a long time. And it was really, really helpful to have my thinking wind down and not be, and this is what I learned initially in retreats, to be able to have my, to be able to experience, you know, the sunset or uh, a meal without thinking all the time. And that's really, I th- that's for me, what the critique of thinking too much is really about. It's it's a a very sort of brief way to say it is not being controlled by our thinking, but rather have thinking be a tool that we can use in a skillful way. That's a very brief way to summarize, I think, what the core teaching is about, that uh, when we're not controlled by thinking, we can use it in a way that helps us go more deeply, helps us orient ourselves, helps us understand what's wise right now. And so that's what I'm going to explore in the, uh, in the rest of the talk and some practices, and I think we'll probably continue on to next week. So it's a really valuable tool of practice. It can easily be misunderstood. So a few different aspects of practice involving inquiry one of them and it's a nice place to start is with a famous uh pretty famous story uh, of uh from the teachings of the buddha really a core way that the buddha taught about the value of inquiry and this came from his visit to a town i think in northern india near the crossroads where the people were called the uh, Kalamas. He was visiting the town, was called Kesaputa. And the, he, was, he was addressed by someone who was sort of representing the people in the town. And they said this, there are many spiritual people who come to Kesaputa. There are some priests and contemplatives who come and they expound and they glorify their own teachings. But as for the teachings of others, They deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. And then other spiritual teachers come and they expound and glorify their own teachings. But as for the teachings of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. They leave us completely uncertain and in doubt. Which of these teachers are teaching the truth? Which of them are teaching? Something valuable for us. I've always thought uh, that this was a little bit like living in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area where there are all sorts of teachings. You know, today you're listening to Buddhist teachings. Tomorrow you could listen to something else. You have different teachers come. One of them says, you know, uh, really meditate intensively. Another one says, you don't really need to meditate just open to the truth. Another one says, you know, um, do this. Someone says the opposite and we get a whole range of teachings and some of them say, come to my teachings. This is what I can offer in there. And here's the price tag, right? And anyway, can and how many people have been confused at times by just how many different teachings there are, you know? So it's, it's very real. So this is like the people of, uh, Kesaputta, the Kalamas. So here's what the Buddha said in response to them. Yes, Kalamas, it is proper that you have doubt. It is proper that you have perplexity. Now, Kalamas, do not be led for knowing what is true by reports. Do not be led by tradition. Isn't that interesting? The Buddha is saying, don't follow something just because it's tradition. Little did he know what would happen making a tradition of his teachings. Little did he know. Any case. But he says, don't follow something because it's simply tradition. Don't follow it because it's hearsay. Don't be led by the authority of religious texts. 2,600 years ago, he said that. That's quite something, isn't it? Don't be led by the authority of religious texts, nor by logic and inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by, by delighting in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is my teacher and my teacher is saying this. So that leaves you to not simply accept anything being said today, right? Don't follow it just because a teacher is saying it. But rather, Kalamas, when you know for yourself that certain things are unskillful and not helpful, give them up. When you know for yourselves that certain things are skillful and helpful, accept and follow them. It was basically saying you need to look for yourself. You need to inquire. You need to ask questions. Is this helpful? Is this skillful? Is this leading to good places? And that was the Buddha's answer. Isn't that, I find that pretty remarkable from 2,600 years ago. You know, don't simply accept teachers, don't accept uh, spiritual texts, don't accept tradition, don't accept authority. Look for yourself very carefully and deeply. And so, this quality of inquiry is related to that it's related to being able to look carefully into our experience and seeing what's there and in particular it's looking in you know I'll I'll talk about a few different qualities of of um, of inquiry but the most basic way that the Buddha taught about inquiry was about looking directly into experience and seeing what's there and seeing the nature of the patterns of experience, seeing the nature of the different uh, experiences we have, seeing the nature of anger or sadness or happiness or joy, seeing experience clearly. So I want to talk for the rest of the time about five ways of developing inquiry, and some of them I brought out in the guided meditation. then we'll we'll talk together. I'm gonna invite us, if you feel called in the next week, to work with some of these forms of inquiries. I'm gonna talk about them both as we can do them in uh, formal meditation, and as we can practice them in daily life. So I'll mention the five of them first, and then I'll go over each of the five. The first is inquiry based on mindfulness. The second is what we might call uh, deep listening, and particularly going into listening through the body and the heart. I'm saying that partly in terms of this being a very mental culture, by and large, and the value of listening through the body and listening through the heart. That's a kind of second is deep listening. The third form of inquiry is using a particular teaching to guide us in looking carefully. So we might use even this teaching of the seven factors of awakening. We might use teachings about reactivity, teachings about uh, the four noble truths, uh, a variety we can use a particular teaching. It can give us like a framework through which to look at experience. And that can be really, really helpful. You know, an example of that would be, um, my first teacher was Joseph Goldstein, and he gave me a kind of inquiry practice right at the beginning. He said, if there's suffering, where's the attachment? That's working with the teaching. And so he, he said, so f- for a period of time, every time I had some you know, kind of suffering, like some kind of got, got stuck, I would ask, am I in some way attached to something? I would look for it in my experience. It was a really, really helpful practice. That would be an example of using a teaching. Mm -hmm. A fourth is what we might call radical questioning. Asking one simple question often over and over again. No, I'll I'll explain that just in, in a little while. And then the last one I'll talk about is something that I've sometimes mentioned in the context of teaching on working with the judgmental mind. And this is using inquiry to open us up to what we might call limiting beliefs that are typically unconscious and beneath the surface. So inquiry can actually take us into our uh, unconscious. Inquiry can go beneath the surface. And open things up to what is actually uh driving us, but we're not aware of it. you know sometimes that will open up to um you know uh old childhood stuff you know or sometimes even to something that's in the territory of trauma and so inquiry can sometimes open that up sometimes we need other tools to work with it but that that's the last one I'll talk about and i'll see i'll I'll see if I can get through all of these. If, if necessary, I'll just go through the first, maybe the first three, if, I, if that takes uh, the rest of the time. So the first one is, is using inquiry and mindfulness. And some of us know this approach um, through the framework of what's called the RAIN approach to uh, practice, which was first developed by Michelle McDonald-Smith, you know, I think about over, you know, over 25 years ago. And this, as many of us remember, is identifying the R stands for recognizing what's happening. You know, this is really seeing what's happening, which which is actually in itself one whole form of inquiry, which I gave during the guided meditation. It's simply asking what's happening, right? What's going on right now? And it's, we can do that in formal meditation. We can also do that in daily life. We stop and we ask, what's going on in my mind right now? Just do that during the day. You can, you know, maybe have, you know, if you want to use a, a phone or a computer, you can have a way that you uh, ring a bell, you know, ring a bell every 10 minutes and ask, what's happening right now? You know? You know, I... I was uh, growing up some during kind of what for some people was sort of the psychedelic era. And I had a friend who uh, for about a year and a half, all he said is what's happening, man. (laughs) And so I don't know. I don't know if that's connected, but that's, uh, I, I remember that we, you know, after about a year and a half, he, he brought in more vocabulary, but he was, that was, you know, it was, it was in a somewhat influenced state of mind, but anyway, that's, that that comes to mind when I think about that, but we can ask. We can actually ring a bell every ten minutes and ask what's happening. You know, not not necessarily do that all the time, but as a training for a week, it could be really interesting, right? You know, or do it for a day, or do it for three hours. That is kind of an inquiry. It's really using um, a support to ask what's going on right now. So that would be the recognition part, the R. And then the A part is sort of it's you know, Michelle used the word acceptance, which means the idea accepting that this is actually happening. Not so much accepting that this is good or bad, but accepting that this is real and happening. And then the I stands for inquiry investigation. And the the N, as she developed it, I think Tara Brock has changed it some. She, Tara Brock, I think, uses nourish. Uh, the original version was non-identification, which is very much connected with, with inquiry. It means to really look at it almost as if you're a scientist or a naturalist, just looking at what's going on very directly without taking it personally. That's, that's, that's what it means. And so it's important when we're doing inquiry and investigation into what's happening to remember that guidance that I gave in the uh, uh, meditation which is very helpful to know what the level of intensity is when we're doing uh, mindful inquiry. Know what the level of intensity is because when the level of intensity is too high, inquiry is not appropriate and even mindfulness is not necessarily appropriate because things can be there that are at a nine or a ten where we can't really be mindful. Sometimes even it could be something comes up that even has traumatic residues. And if we try to be mindful with it, we'll actually re-traumatize ourselves a little. And so it's actually helpful to be really clear. What's the level of intensity? Is this something I can be uh, mindful with so that it's workable? Really important guideline for all of what we're looking at now. See that it's workable, even if it's hard, of course, but not that it's a 9 or a 10. And so then we can actually just try to be with the experience. And, you know, as we did, we can do that. We can ask what's happening. And maybe we just notice in the moment, oh, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit tired or, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, a little frustrated right now. Those are really helpful to know because as we'll see, it can, um, we can connect that with some of the other forms of inquiry. One of the very simple forms of inquiry that I like is asking the question, I'll come back to this, is asking the question, what's, what wise for me, what's a wise response to the present moment for me right now? If we do that 10 times a day, it'll really, really, really help. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that, uh, back into, uh, as to, um, sort of one of my, uh, uh, one of my ways of, of questioning. So, uh, I'll put that under the fourth, but that's something we can do in connection with mindfulness. We can sometimes, okay, this is what's happening. What's wise right now. You know, I'm feeling kind of irritated and my mind is going over again and again, what happened yesterday, right? What's wise for me right now. And my response might be, let's take a pause. Let's sit for 10 minutes. Let me be with this and try to feel what it's like in the body and the emotions, you know, that could be my my response to what's wise. Or it could be, um, you know, this isn't so helpful to keep on thinking about it, but I will give some time to meditate with it later. You know, it could be that. Or it could be mine. This is really hard for me. Let me give myself some compassion. Those could all be answers to the question of what's wise right now. So, um, but being mindful, we might... If it's in meditation, and let's say I have that situation of remembering something irritating from, from yesterday, then I could actually, and it comes up, then I can actually be with it. And I could do that further inquiry, what's going on in the body? What's going on in the, in the heart? Particularly when we're thinking a lot about something, going into the body and feeling what's there and really feeling the emotions is so crucial. And there can be a practice where we actually go from one to the other. Let me hang out for a minute with the body. Okay, Let me just feel what the body is like and with my irritation. Okay, it's kind of, I feel myself a little bit tense or, you know, I'm, my chest is caving in a little bit or, you know, I have some tension in my head or whatever it is. Okay, let me hang out with that, see what's there. Oh, let me be with the emotions. Oh, let me be with, yeah, let me feel what the irritation is like. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, has some fire to it. Yeah, it's kind of like, has a lot of energy to it. Let me feel that. Okay, what's, how does it change? Oh, at times it's kind of shifting a little bit. I'm feeling just some sadness that this difficult interaction happened with someone who is close to me. I feel some sadness. Let me just be with that. So we can notice how the emotion changes, how the body changes. That's all part of inquiry. And you can see how when we're doing this, we can it can actually really spark uh, interest. You know, if our, if our practice doesn't feel very alive, inquiry can help bring it alive because it really can, we can be learning. You know, this is really, inquiry really connects with our love of learning. And when we bring inquiry in, we can, you know, I, I experienced in doing inquiry with emotions, I've never really explored emotions like that. Sometimes I tell the story of having anger at a retreat for like 10 days straight. And, you know, I was working with Jack Cornfield, and he was great. He said, really look into your anger. And it happened to last for like 10 days all the time. And it also was workable. It wasn't overly intense. Right. And so I got to look into anger like I had never looked into anger ever in my life. And it was so fascinating because basically what I found when I stayed with the anger, it lasted quite a while, but sometimes I would find the anger would go to sadness. And sometimes the sadness would go to love. It was really helpful for me to know that a lot of my anger was being driven by love that I wasn't in touch with or by sadness that I wasn't in touch with. So there was so much learning that happened from, from exploring like this. So we, you know, so there are different levels of inquiry with mindfulness. Sometimes we can just ask, "What's happening in the moment?" Be very simple. We get a, you know, a one-word response. Sometimes, if something lasts for a while, we can really stay with the body, stay with the emotions, really track something. So that we really can have a better sense. Oh, this is what anger is like. This is what irritation is like. You know, can do the same thing with joy. Let me explore what does it feel like to be joyful? What's it like in my body? What's it like in in my heart? You know, so we can do this in formal meditation. We can do this in, um, we can do this in daily life practice. Again, we could stop like I've been suggesting and just ask what's happening. If we have something come up that has a certain amount of intensity, like the examples I've given, if we can, and it's happening just, you know, in daily life, and I can take a pause, we can take a pause and inquire into what's happening for five minutes. You know, one of the great tools for daily life practice is pausing, particularly when something is sort of taking over our mind and heart and body. You know, can, can we do that? Can we just stop and say, let me look at this rather than to be so caught? again, this is where mindfulness is key when we ask what's happening. And then we know, oh, I'm really preoccupied with this. That might lead us then to answer the question, what's wise right now? Let me just stop if I can do that. Or, you know, if I'm in the middle of a discussion with someone and I find myself really caught, can I take a break for five or ten minutes? This is where the ancient... And very important technique of taking a bathroom break is really, can be really crucial. You're at a family gathering, you get really upset by something, take a bathroom break, right? Take two bathroom breaks. It's not very, people don't usually make comments on how often you go to the bathroom, right? So use it. No, very helpful technique. Take, in other words, uh, Pauses, taking breaks when something is really bothering us, and you know, partly just settle down. But we can also do some inquiry: what's really happening? You know, sometimes we're just caught up with things and we don't even know we're angry, right? How many people have found yourself actually angry but not really knowing you're angry? Sometimes it's very interesting how that happens, isn't it? Right. So that's the first. That's the first kind of inquiry, which is a really fundamental one. So we can. We can uh, uh, ask what's happening. If there's too much happening and it's too, you know, it's, we're too preoccupied, then it's valuable. You know, then we can remember that model of the factors of awakening and we can go to, you know, let the mind settle a little bit. Let me have some concentration. You know, if you have some time, you can do this in formal meditation or daily life. First settle a little bit, then come back to the inquiry, you know. So the second kind of inquiry is involving with what I'm involved with what I'm calling kind of a deep listening, a deep listening to ourselves could also be to another person. You know, if, if it's with another person, it could be a kind of deep listening that we could call sometimes empathy, you know, and sometimes it's easier to do, you know, when we're not with the person, but if someone is having a difficult time even that we're having difficulties with this person, it can be a powerful practice to listen deeply to what's there for the other person. Really incredible, powerful practice for interpersonal challenges, for conflicts. You know, deep listening, really, really crucial. Listening, deep listening to some, someone else. We can also listen deeply to ourselves. And I'm particularly emphasizing how listening to our emotions and body and sort of finding our way beneath the usual storyline or narrative is a really important form of inquiry. Sometimes we it really takes going into the body to know what's happening. And so one technique which I use, which I've sometimes taught here, uh, I call the dropping down practice. And this is a practice where we first notice ourselves that we're sort of wrapped up in thought and storyline. We're wrapped up in thought or storyline. We notice that and we bring the attention to the body to often to the upper body sometimes around the heart, sometimes could be the area from the belly to the heart, and we just let whatever happens, happen. What we're actually doing is we're switching off the mental channel, the storyline channel, and we're switching to, we might say, the channel of the body and the heart, and we're opening that up, and sometimes that'll tell us what's beneath the surface. And sometimes it, it won't, you know, sometimes it can take some more time. So let me actually, I think I'd like to do this practice as a, a very brief guided practice right now. So maybe take a comfortable posture. And first, uh, you know, I, I, I use this practice a lot with um, what I call the judgmental mind. So I think we'll use it in that context. So think of a a time maybe in the last day or two when you've been judgmental either towards yourself or towards someone else and it's in on a level of intensity scale from one to ten it's in the four to seven range not the most intense it could be like a kind of moderately powerful moderately strong judgmental idea about a co-worker or Friend or partner or whatever. So first bring to mind what what that um, what that inner thought is for you. First identify what which one you'll want to work with. see if you can express it as one sentence. The one that I came up with in thinking of an example for me is, he's really not empathic. And you can feel the tone of voice, right? Tone of voice uh, can often let you know even more accurately than the words that there's some charge. So come up with something like that. Okay, raise your hand if you have your sentence and your, your situation in mind. How many people need a little more time? Okay. Okay, so here's here's the practice. It's a very simple practice. You can do it in about two or three minutes. First, bring to mind the judgmental expression as if you're reliving the moment when you had it. And hang out with it. We'll hang out with it for about 45 seconds a minute. Bring it to mind as if you're reliving it. Feel what it's like. Keep on with the storyline. Now bring your attention to the center of the chest. Holding your awareness there in a light way, not in a very focused way. Not focused. Just in a light way around the center of the chest. Could be around the belly also. And just be there and see if anything surfaces. I'll stay here for about a minute or two. Now we can let go of that whole um, experience. You can shake out the judgment if you want to. So It's not there in your system. And this, this practice, it'll be different for different people. And when I first did it, I learned a version of it from a person who was a teacher and mentor for me, John Travis. When I first did it, it took repeating it probably over a week or two, many times a day before something really clicked. But after a while, I started to have a pretty quick entry to what was almost like beneath the surface that I didn't really realize when I was being judgmental. He's not empathic. And when I did it just now, I actually felt some sadness. Uh, When I first was doing it, I wouldn't experience much of anything. So it it can take some time. If you've done a lot of uh, body practice <clears throat> where you're very connected to your body, sometimes it can be more quick. But just have some patience with it as a technique that it can take doing it 50, 100 times, you know, and, you know, for some of us it um, could be longer. Uh, to, But for for me, after a while, I started to be able to, go into the body and often get a sense of what was driving uh, repetitive thinking. So it's particularly valuable when there's a lot of repetitive thinking and we're kind of caught up in a storyline. And then we go into the body or the uh, the body area around the heart or the upper body to, to see. So I offer that technique as one you might want to try in the next week. And this is, again another way for another way to uh, to practice with inquiry it's it's really uh, using particularly the body and the heart or the emotions to um, uh, opening up those doors as it were to be able to see what's happening so this is really this is really about listening and maybe i'll include I'll close with this, I'll include that practice of listening, which, which has some overlap with the theme of asking questions, you know, which is this very simple practice, particularly when we feel a little bit stuck or something comes up, of asking the question, what's wise right now? Or we could say, what's wise and compassionate right now? I'm just asking that from time to time and letting there be some silence, and listening for what's beneath the surface, you know, listening for what might be a more authentic voice. And I know for myself, it took time to kind of open up my um, access to this kind of what we might call an authentic voice. We can use different languages. The Quakers call this The still small voice. How many people have heard of that Quaker phrase? The still small voice. I know for myself, it wasn't always accessible. And it took some meditation really helped me have it be more accessible. You know, but we're looking to, can I, can I notice that that really authentic voice of wisdom and compassion that actually is always there, but it gets covered over And for some of us, we have to do some excavation work to have it be available. So let me finish just with uh, one line from a poem by Rilke. This is from the translation by Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows. It's about listening. All creation holds its breath listening within me because to hear you I keep silent. All creation holds its breath listening within me because to hear you I keep silent. So what I'll invite if you feel called in the next uh, week, and hopefully you know we can all, or many of us can, can be together next week. What well, I'll invite is, if you feel called in this way, is to work with um, one or both of these forms of inquiry. The first being just what's happening now, then going more deeply when something is around for a while with mindfulness, exploring what it's like, body, mind, storyline. And then the second, is it's a related practice, but it's really taking particularly a place where we're kind of stuck in the mind in a narrative in a story and using this dropping down practice to go into the body and the emotions. How many of you would like to use some of these practices in the next week? And, okay, great. we uh, come back. And if you didn't raise your hand, you can still use them. So let's take a moment just to be quiet and to see if there are any, you know, anything that was helpful for you as well as any, any questions, requests for clarification, something to share, something to ask. We'll take about a minute and then I'll open things up with, uh, with people. So thanks, everyone. And I'll, I'll come back to the other three forms of inquiry uh, next time. That's my plan. So we'll have uh, Andrea and then uh, Victoria.
1: I'm curious. Um, you talked about the intensity and being aware of intensity. I'm curious if this is a way you see um, a useful way of, of dealing with grief.
0: With grief. Um, I think so. I think any um, strong emotion we want to see when it's, we, we can use mindfulness and inquiry when it's in the workable range. And a lot is very workable. I mean, we can be, I mean, I, I think I, I talked about this. Uh, after my mother died, she died unexpectedly six days before I was doing four weeks of retreat. And um, so I was with grief for pretty much the entire four weeks. And it came through pretty strongly sometimes, right, with sobbing and so forth. And but it was it was it was workable. I could stay with it. So that's really the question we ask. And sometimes it can be overly intense, where it's it's too hard to be with it. Um, you know, at the level of the body or the mind or the emotions. And then we would want to have a way of helping to hold it. It might be to do something physical, or take a walk, or talk with someone. So we want to kind of have a repertoire when it's when it's overly. Uh, when it's too too intense to be present to, but I think asking that question is really crucial for all of all of what we're looking at that yeah. get at it Andrea yeah, thank you okay, Victoria, please um my
1: question is similar to Andrea's in the sense that um i found that uh, when I'm really triggered by a powerful emotion like grief or, um, or anger or something like that, um, I try all these techniques and then the dropping down practice in particular, um, tends to trigger even more. It's like, it's like once I identify what's happened to me, um, through the emotion somatically, it, the dropping down practice actually intensifies it because when I become aware of it, it sort of, it, it kind of goes into a cycle, so um, I guess is your answer to Andre in the sense of like um, doing something totally different, like like going for a walk or listening to music or some something to that's a totally different activity. Is that the?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Victoria, for your for your reflection and question. Um, yeah, it's. Um, for, let me know if this is uh, accurate. What what you're reporting. But it sounds like when you go into the body and the emotions, it may trigger more memories and it might trigger more stories and narratives, right? Exactly. So, so actually what we're, we're hearing, what I'm hearing is that actually in those circumstances, it's actually not really possible to stay just at the level of the body or mm-hmm. to stay just at the level of the emotions. So, and yeah. the mind,
1: of course, is circling. So yeah, the, I, it's sort mind- of like I... Yeah, I have no resources, body or mind.
0: <laughs> the mind, the mind is kind of looping, as we say. You know, people use that term sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you want to I actually. I was recalling back when I was in that grief process. One of the um, really great pieces of guidance that I got from one one person who was um, kind of I was working with. You know, as a, in a teaching mode. He said, let the grief occur and notice what gets in the way of the process, you know, which for me was typically when there was some kind of narrative or story that I got kind of hung up on. Like for me, concretely, in that example I gave, it was thinking, you know, um, I should have known to do something in the situation, you know, when we didn't know what was happening. You know, that would would be an example. And I could get a little bit fixated on that. And I used, I had ways of working with it. I I actually used different kinds of rituals quite a bit to really help to release some of those negative narratives. And so, um, so, yeah, so if you're, if the narratives are just taking over and you're there, you know, taking you for a run, so to speak, then you want to find some way to settle it down. It could be to do a body practice, take a walk. You know, you know, do things which help the minds Could be to do concentration practice, which just help you to settle down for a bit. So, mm-hmm. so that would. You know, but to have a repertoire when the mind is sort of taking over.
1: Yeah, maybe I would love it. I'm not sure what you're referring to specifically with concentration practice. So maybe next week, if you could um, touch on that again, I'd appreciate it because I yeah. know we're out
0: of. Yeah, it could mean it could mean simply to do something which stabilizes your mind, so you're not thinking so much. So okay. it could be, you know, if you had enough, it could be to do metta or concentration practice with the breath that, that just really I was meaning in a very simple way, just like oh. what we do at the beginning of the meditation. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I think, uh, Amy, please. Hi. Hi. Um,
2: What I'm seeing with my inquiry during the quietest times in On the Cush is that there seems to be a point beyond which I don't ask.
0: Beyond which you don't ask or pass? I
2: I don't pass. Okay. Yeah, a, a place beyond which I don't pass, and it's feels like the interface of the known me, mind, ego. You know, it feels like the world are flat. The edge of that world. Um, this is a quote, but. It feels scary to give yourself to just one thing. And my story, my suffering, is that maybe I don't have the capacity to take that glimpse of something new because I always refuse. I push back. I resist the present moment, like you said, the point where I and there might not be enough enough time in my lifetime. Um, I might not have the capacity.
0: Yeah. Amy, thank you. Thank you for being really so, um, Mm -hmm. direct and clear on, on something challenging. Um, And I think all we need to, you know, this is another really great inquiry question is what is my next step? (sighs) Or what is my another way to say it is, what's my current edge of learning? And so that can be a more helpful question than how can I get to this or that level that I think I should get to? Right? And so, what is my edge of learning right now? And for you, it might be to study. Uh, what you're calling that resistance you know because and without without any sense of a timetable yeah Um, you know for example i know at one point in my practice it was really really crucial to start seeing how i was actually had conditioning where i the very subtle level i wouldn't know it ordinarily but where i was actually scared of really being in the present moment. And I had to almost like control the present moment in various ways, Um, you know, in subtle ways. And if you had asked me, are you controlling the present moment? I wouldn't have, I would have said no, right? But it was almost like, but I, at a certain point in my meditation, I would be with the present moment and I would notice some fear And I would say, oh, this is hard, you know, hard to be with it. And so my practice at that point was to notice my resistance and just open up a little bit more. So that sense of, you know, whatever your practice is showing you, ask the question, what's what am I learning now or what's my edge? That's an inquiry question. And it sounds to me like you have a very clear edge of learning right now that actually can be very exciting. And yeah. again, drop the sense of a timetable, if I can say that like that. <laughs> okay. How does that is that resonating?
2: Yes, yes, and you know, as you're talking, I, I'm feeling, you know, in the chest. Well,
0: yeah,
2: you know, it's how do you drop resistance to something unknown? I mean, it's unknown.
0: <laughs> yeah, the main but, thing is just to just to notice okay. notice the resistance. Okay. And then you can have the intention, you know, can I open in the present moment? I mean, if, if my experience was anything at all parallel to yours, it was actually at a certain point, just noticing it took me three quarters of the way there. And and then it seemed to, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't, it, for, there wasn't a lot of effort just noticing it and then saying, okay, let me just open here. And see what's there, something like that. Pretty, pretty. So keep it pretty simple. So I hope that I hope that's helpful, Amy. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you next week. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can let us. That's right. Make sure you're. I hope you can report next week on how that is. Just explore it in a in a kind of light, friendly way. Light, like friendly. Yeah. Light I've gotten. and friendly way. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Are we doing for time? Looks like we're about um, about ready to finish. Okay, it looks like there's no no one else had a had a sharing or question. So I had five ways of inquiry, and I only gave two of them. I don't know. It's how I, I didn't plan to do that, but it's a good hook for people coming back next week, isn't it? It <laughs> could be anyway um or or maybe two is enough and maybe that's enough who needs another three so again let me let's close in a few ways first by let me invite everyone to um set your intention for the next week, especially if you feel called to work with inquiry what forms of inquiry might you like to use? Again, I gave a few such as just asking what's happening right now. Another one is when something has some energy intensity to explore it with mindfulness, either in formal meditation or in daily life. Another practice could simply be asking what's happening and then ask what's wise right now what's a wise response right now and then also the dropping down practice of going into the body or really the upper body when there's repetitive thinking or when we're really taken by something and doing this over and over again it's not supposed to be a one-time practice it's something we keep on doing until you know could do it you know could do it 25, 30, 50 times in the next week. It take, can take a while for, to uh, start quote unquote working. So see which of these you feel called on, called to uh, work with in the next week. Take about a minute to set your intentions. Also, what will help me to remember to inquire? And I want to close by uh, thanking very much, uh, Emiko, for your support. Yay, Emiko, yay! <laughs> and, uh, and close with the uh, dedication of merit. May our practice this morning be beneficial to us, be beneficial to those in our lives, be beneficial to all other beings so that we offer the benefits of the morning to all beings, which includes us.